welcome to the Draft Deeper podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. And with me tonight, we are recording the final episode in my lottery team series over here at Draft Deeper, where I've been going through each of the top teams that made a selection in the 2022 NBA draft, taking a look at who that top pick was and what they're going to mean for that team during the upcoming 2022-23 NBA season. We've already run through the top five selections. Now we're on number six, the last team we're going to cover in this series. That's right. That's the Indiana Pacers. They drafted sixth overall. They took Benedict Matherin, who we're, we're going to get into plenty about Mr. Matherin in a second, but I have to introduce the guest who's going to join me. I've had a guest on for each and every single episode of this series, and this would be no different. This man is a co-host on the Setting the Pace podcast over on the Blue Wire Podcast Network, Mr. Alex Golden. Alex, it's, it's nice to meet you in the podcast space. You've shown No Ceiling some awesome support, and I know you do great coverage over on your podcast covering the Indiana Pacers, so seemed like an excellent fit to have you join me on tonight's episode of Draft Deeper. What's going on, man? Hey, I've been a big fan of you guys' work, and we were talking off air, and I just said I absolutely think you guys do a great job with your content, and uh, it's always fresh, and I love the graphic design and all that kind of stuff. So if you guys aren't already uh, following No Ceilings, I think you guys need to do that. But um, Nathan, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to talk more Pacers basketball on a different <laughs> platform here with a different uh, with a different person, just because it's always nice to be the one getting asked the questions and always kind of trying to come up with the content uh as a as a podcast host so you know it's kind of nice to be in this chair and react to your question so i'm excited to be here and thanks for the invite no problem a, a little different in terms of where i'm steering the conversation as i have with the other teams in mm -hmm. this podcast series focusing more on the young core not just beating the same drum of talking about the veterans and and expectations for the team and talking strict wins losses we're trying to focus on how some of these young guys are fitting within the team and, and what are some expectations, some realistic expectations that we can set as we head into next year. So we're going to talk about multiple names, but obviously, like I said at the top, we have to start with Benedict Matherin, the sixth overall pick out of Arizona. The consensus top five prospects were essentially off the board, right? By the time Indiana got to choose at number six. So Benedict Matherin was in a lot of people's eyes, that quote unquote, next best guy up or the guy who would be the front runner in that next group. And that, in that range of players that teams were looking at and like that, that six to 10 field. Matherin killed a lot of workouts uh, before the draft. Every single piece, little piece of buzz that you heard before the draft was that he was working incredibly hard he was a killer. He was shown it on both sides of the floor. We saw that during the Arizona season. There are plenty of things that we can talk about in terms of breaking down his game on either side of the ball. But Alex, I'll just start with, with a very general question. Do you feel that the Pacers picked the best of the rest, as I had put it, when, when they selected Benedict Matherin on draft night? Yeah, I definitely think they did. And, you know, there was a lot of back and forth between Pacer fans on whether they wanted Keegan Murray or Benedict Matherin, if both of them are on the board there, um, or if they were to trade up, because there was a lot of talk about maybe the Pacers could trade up and get Jaden Ivey with the Kings, and they could switch, mm -hmm. you know, picks four and six. And obviously, Jaden Ivey being from Purdue, everybody was 
kind of wanting that hometown hero, right? That local guy. But obviously he goes to pick before him. Keegan Murray goes four. And, you know, at that point it was Matherin, or if you were t- talking yourself into it, like I did for a little bit, Shaden Sharp, you thought maybe there's some intrigue there. Obviously he didn't play at Kentucky. There was some weird stuff that happened there, but obviously a really gifted player. And I think there's a reason why he went the next pick after Matherin. But with that being said, um, it was just too big of a risk for the Pacers to take a gamble on a guy like Shane Sharp because they're not usually in this position. And so I felt like the best player there on the board and the safest player there on the board was Benedict Matherin um, just because of the fit that he would bring with Tyrese Halliburton. I, I just feel like yep. mature for his age and the stuff that came back after his workout with the Pacers was just incredible. I don't know if you've heard the stories or not. Um, I will share this real quick in case you haven't. Um, he was at a workout with the team and after the workout um, the Pacers do a three-point shooting drill and you have to hit so many threes and if you hit so many you get to go ring this bell in the gym and it was like something Carlisle uh, put in when he came over last year well he didn't pass um, the drill he didn't he didn't you know hit the the number of threes that he needed to hit so they went out to dinner and after dinner uh, he, he actually calls up coach Carlisle and said Hey, are we, uh, are you good to get another workout? And he said, I want to beat this drill. And so <laughs> Carlisle and him went out there after they had dinner and uh, sure enough, he went in there and conquered that, that drill. And, you know, I think at that point, him just getting in there and showing like it bothered him that much that he didn't hit that many threes that he was supposed to, to, to complete the drill or, or, or pass, whatever you want to call it. That to me just spoke volumes to like this kid's special and he's got the work ethic that you want, especially here in a small market team like Indiana. So I think that really did help sell it. Now, I I know they were high on him before he came in the workout, obviously. Who wouldn't be? But just that, I think that could have been the icing on the cake for this team when they were looking at the potential players to draft. So you can go back and you can watch the Arizona film and particularly on the the defensive end when he had the opportunity to go after a loose ball or make a play on the ball, dive on the floor, whatever the case may be. Matherin went and did it. It's like him and two Bellis, I swear, we're always cr- crashing the floor. Yeah. Him, those two and then Dale and Terry, right? We're always showing the most effort out of anybody else, usually in the entire game, right? And mm-hmm. you saw Matherin give that much effort on defense. And then on the offensive side of the ball, he would be their, their essentially their number one option, right? Their, their go-to score. And he did that in a variety of ways, but it wasn't, it wasn't always on the ball. Right. He he played. He also played an off ball role. He could do that through the spot up game, the catch and shoot game. He was an awesome cutter along the baseline, sort of giving them a, a vertical lob third along the baseline at times. There are many different ways that Matherin can manufacture points without it being the traditional isolation. I got to have the ball in my hands or I'm doing every single thing out of pick and roll. And you have a player who will dominate the ball and who will do those things. And, and Tyrese Halliburton, we'll, we'll certainly talk about him at another point in this podcast. But I think Matherin brings an off-ball dimension when you combine his shooting ability and his athleticism along with his competitive nature and his willingness to just go out there and do it every single night on both sides of the ball. I mean, he, he thinks so highly of himself. He's incredibly <laughs> confident in who he is and what his abilities are. And, and Alex, you, you know, the Indiana Pacers much better than I do. Do do you think that bringing in Matherin kind of gives you guys a a player that 
you, you weren't quite sure you had before? Do you think he's definitely something different that's going to stand out? Or do you think it's more so you have a bunch of guys like him, he's going to assimilate much quicker than he would maybe on another team? Like which, which of those two do you think it might be closer to? No, I think they needed someone like him because for, for so long uh, on our podcast, we've been talking about, you know, wanting a guy that's got a super competitive edge to him. And it feels like they haven't had that player. Um, I mean, Oladipo was really good in 17, yep. 18, but after that, uh, things just kind of went downhill for him. The injury really killed him. Um, the rehab was tough and, and stuff like that. So they just kind of needed someone with that dog mentality that wasn't going to be afraid of anything. And I think, that's who Matherin kind of projects to be like, you know, we've heard the comments, like what he said about uh, LeBron's going to have to prove that (laughs) he's a better player than him when they play each other. It's like, he knows that he's better. Like he's not saying that, but he's basically just like, I'm not going to let him think that I think he's better than me. I'm not just going to give him that respect right away. He's going to have to earn it. And you love hearing that. I know some people on Twitter were like, he shouldn't be saying that he's putting his foot in his mouth. It's like, no, you want someone to have that kind of confidence to them. But like you said, I mean, he is going to mesh so well with Tyrese Halliburton. We had Tyrese on our podcast, and I, I even asked him, I said, who's more confident, you or Matherin? And he said, <laughs> oh, Benedict Matherin, no doubt about it. So just having the confidence in yourself, I think, is something that it, it speaks volumes to, like, what this kid's potential can be. And you talked about it, like, does the little things, good off the ball, uh, good back backdoor cutter, one of those kind of guys – Honestly, for me, what I've seen from him on film, not I'm not dissected it probably as much as you have, Nathan, but I will say I feel like he's better without the ball in his hands and letting someone else kind of create for him. Yep. And I think he has that potential to be a creator eventually as an isolation score. He's got moments of it where it looks really good, but there's other times where it doesn't look the greatest. So I think that's where he can really improve upon uh, in the NBA, just like getting better at being an isolation score. But, you know, is he 20 years old? I, I don't remember how old he is, 19, 20. Uh, super young guy. He's obviously taken a step from freshman year to sophomore year at Arizona. I think that he's on the perfect team to take the next steps because of, one, their point guard, and two, their coach, and and, and three, really, knowing where this team uh, is heading directionally because there's not a lot of pressure on him to be the guy. It's coming here play your best and 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 kind of learn as as we grow and we try to develop these young players so i said before the draft that my my ceiling comp for benedict matherin was what andrew wiggins looks like in golden state and what okay. i mean by that is not not the featured score maybe not even the number two in in most lineups but one of those guys who became Wiggins became incredibly reliable off the ball with Golden State right he was willing to to do the little things he was willing to cut when he needed to he was willing to crash the offensive rebounds he became the catch and shoot threat that I think we we all thought that he could be but he became even more of that in Golden State Matherin we know that he can catch and shoot her right we we know that that he can cut he needs to in, in a similar way to Wiggins he needs to improve making decisions with the ball in his hands. I think we saw more of that live dribble improvement as far as passing the basketball and making the right reads out of the pick and roll at Arizona in his second year. I think more, more continued progression through that him improving in that area will certainly help him out a lot. But yeah, I, I think the isolation stuff, I think more of that can come in time, but when comparing him to somebody like Wiggins, if, if Matherin can be a, a standout, 
third banana like that, somebody who, depending on the lineup, if he needs to be, you know, more of a number one or a number two, depending on who he's mixing and matching with in the lineup, he can go do that for you in spurts as well, which is what we've seen Wiggins do in Golden State. When he's been the main guy on the floor, he's been able to carry certain lineups for a little bit, but he's obviously not doing that for the entire game. I think Matherin is a very similar player, and, and at least that's the upward trajectory that I would point him in. And I think that's still a very valuable player for you to find in, in the NBA draft. And, and I'm curious to get your, your take on this is that not every single time are you going to be able to find that, that true number one standout option, especially if you're not picking in the top three picks of the draft. But if you're picking anywhere from four through 14 in the lottery, and you can guarantee essentially, or, or as close to guarantee as you possibly can, that you're going to come out with a legitimate starting caliber player, especially at the wing position, which is so in demand, in the NBA nowadays, if you can walk away with that player, I think you're going to be incredibly happy with the draft selection that you made. Is that kind of the feeling around the, the Pacers fan base after the fact, especially after seeing him in summer league, that he may not be the, the Paolo Bencaro, the Chet Holmgren, but this is a guy who can really help the Pacers franchise for, for years to come moving forward? Yeah, I would say the consensus is probably that. I think there's a few fans that are a little bit higher on him and think that he could be that number one guy. I personally don't see it right now. I think you bring up a great point comparing him to how Wiggins is kind of utilized in that Golden State lineup. Like there's times where Wiggins looks like the best player on the floor sometimes, even with Steph out there because of his versatility on both sides of the basketball. But, you know, at the end of the day, like he's just not that number one option, you know, night in and night out. So for me, Matherin, like I think one thing that really impressed fans in summer league was the efficiency in which he got his points. I mean, he didn't even play that many minutes and he was putting up some good numbers. So that's where fans are like, man, you give this guy 30 some minutes in an NBA game. Oh, he's going to be lights out. Well, it's like, well, it's a little bit different. (laughs) Summer league talent versus (laughs) NBA talent. We got to remember that. And you also have to remember, like, he's not going to be the number one option more than likely on the starting lineup. Um, if he, if he, if he does start, but I think he will, um, you know, playing next to Halliburton. This is Halliburton's team. I mean, it's clear as day. Uh, Chad Buchanan talked to Alex Kennedy from basketballnews.com. We had Alex on our podcast last week, and Chad just came out and said, yeah, this is the face of our franchise. We want him to be the next Reggie Miller in terms of Tyrese Halliburton. So we know Mathern doesn't have to worry about being the face of the franchise, but like you said, you know, he's not a Paulo Boncaro. That's not his game right now. Um, I don't I don't think it ever will be. I mean, Paulo is a, a special player. And you don't see a lot of those in the draft there. That's why you want that number one, number two pick because of those, uh, those tiers. They're just, they're just better players. that can do a little bit more. And, you know, I'm not trying to limit Mather and ceiling, right. You know, uh, I think he's got a ton of potential. I think he's got the work ethic to be really, really good, but at pick six, you know, what you're hoping for here is a, is a starter for a very long time. And I don't think, um, it's out of question that he could be your second or third best player on a really good playoff team, especially yep. as he continues to develop. Um, it's not saying he's not the number one option or a number one option is not a, is not a slight. It's just kind of like realizing who he is overall as a player, but I think he could potentially, if he reaches all of, all of the, like the things he needs to work on, if he can achieve those, then maybe he could prove us wrong. Um, but, you know, I, I do think, the Andrew Wiggins comparison is interesting. Now, another Timberwolf, uh, not, not Andrew Wiggins, <laughs> but uh, Anthony Edwards 
uh, he has some comparisons to him. Now, I don't know if he's going to reach that level, obviously, but I have heard from different people that uh, basically do a lot of watching of basketball that I've talked to. They, they said that they could see like if Matherin reaches his full potential being like Anthony Edwards of the Eastern conference. So uh, that would be great. I think every Pacers <laughs> fan would be excited about that. And that's where a lot of Pacer hopefuls are just like their expectations are probably a little bit too high for him to become that. But overall, I just think like he's going to have a lot of good looks and a lot of good opportunities playing next to Tyrese Halliburton because Halliburton is that special of a player. And I think similar to Wiggins, like he's got Steph and Draymond being such good playmakers that it does open up opportunities for him to get better looks than he probably was getting with a very clunky team in Minnesota. You mentioned the efficiency in summer league. And that was a great point that, that I was going to pivot to next is sort of my last question for you about Matherin before we yeah. move on to some of the other guys, no, notably Tyrese Halliburton. We know that he's going to be a focal point of this podcast as well, but in three games out in Las Vegas, averaged about 22 and a half minutes per game, 19.3 points per game. So not, not terribly far off from essentially a point a minute out at summer league, almost 49% from the field, 36% from three point range, nearly 77% from the line. So he was clearly able to do a number of things on the court at an efficient rate. I thought some of the defense out there was, was hit or miss, but, but any rookie coming into the NBA, I mean, how many of these guys are actually good on the defensive side of the ball within their first two years, practically in the NBA, let alone their first year. It, it, it's really rare to see that. And, and it's, it, it's a little unnerving to expect that from a rookie player trying to make the difficult transition that is the NBA. So I wasn't too concerned about anything I saw on, on the defensive side of the ball. The offense was interesting though. Um, his, his first game against the Charlotte Hornets, that was probably the, the most standout performance. The, the one that had all the YouTube highlights connected to it where he scored 23 points he was nine of 16 from the field but he shot three of six from three-point range a lot of that game was primarily him showing off his perimeter skill outside of a few flashy plays then he had a game against the kings it was a a little bit of a letdown compared to his first game but then you get to the third game against the pistons where he had 20 points and what what i liked about his summer league performance alex was first game two free throw attempts second game five free throw attempts last game, 10 free throw attempts. And he was nine, nine of 10 from the line in that game against the Pistons. That's the kind of aggressiveness that I want to see more of from Matherin. Don't always settle for the outside shot. He doesn't have, he doesn't have the, the greatest handle in the world, but he's certainly functional enough, especially going to his right He's explosive enough off that first step to where he can get by guys. And if he just beelines to the basket, he can make a play there. He doesn't always have to settle for that perimeter shot. Um, Is there any one skill in particular you're, you, you want to see from Benedict Matherin in his rookie year, maybe some, some realistic expectations for what you want to see from him? Yeah. I mean, you bring up a great point. We brought that up as well uh, on the podcast is this talking about the free throw attempts. I mean, that was huge to us seeing him get 10 free throw attempts in that game. I think he's got the upper body strength to get to the basket at will. It's all about, you know, getting that handle down because I do think he does have a shaky handle right now. Um, it's yep. something he's going to have to improve upon. And that's why I don't love his on ball game like all the way right now. I think he's 
it's okay and it's something he can improve upon and that's what i really want to see him develop this year because i'm not worried about the shot i'm not worried about the off ball movement um i think on ball defensively you know he can get better there a little bit sometimes i i, I watch him ball watch a little bit too much and i think you guys probably just know like that's just being young and yep. getting in with carlisle i mean Every player that we brought on, they've talked about, we got to get better defensively. Like the Pacers were bad defensively last year. And Carlisle is known for being a defensive-minded coach um, that has a really good offense as well. So, I mean, but he focuses really high on the defensive side of things. And the Pacers have not been very athletic. Like if you look at some of the guys they've had, like Brogdon, foot injuries, Sabonis, not like a super freak athlete. Uh, Jeremy Lamb, not a freak athlete. So like those that's, are the kind so, of- So re- really quick to stop you. That yeah. That's the point that I, I'm actually surprised that that you or I haven't brought up up to yeah. this point when we talk about Matherin's fit which, with the Pacers, which I guess is technically a Tyrese Halliburton segue where we can transition into that portion of the conversation because Matherin's going to help them so much in transition. Like you yeah. go back and watch some of these Pacers games after they acquired Halliburton, he wants to play fast. He wants to push the pace. He wants to get up and down the floor. He can be that guy who finishes those attempts himself, but he's also plenty aware of what's going on around him to where he can make those hit ahead passes. If somebody's able to get out in, in front of the defense and transition and Matherin can be that kind of a running mate for Halliburton, which, which I, I agree you're going to get into to more of this, but, but yeah, they, they need a guy like him, especially in transition to thrive next to Halliburton. No, and you're right. And one thing I was going to bring up too, just going back to that first summer league game when he played his best. I mean, obviously, I think part of it has to do with it being the first game, uh, ex, you know, excited to play, show off what he's got. But in that game, that was the only game Chris Duarte actually played in summer league as well. Mm-hmm. And I know that they actually put them together as roommates during that week to kind of get them bonded, to get them closer together so they can kind of gel as teammates on and off the floor, which is huge because while we don't know if Duarte is going to start next to Matherin, I think people anticipate them both to be starting, but with Buddy Hield still on the roster, he could technically yep. start. Um, we're not sure what's going to happen, but a lot of people want to see that combination of Halliburton, Duarte, and Matherin. And like you said, they just have to get more athletic because um, this Pacers team wants to play differently than how they were previously playing with the roster they had constructed last offseason. So that is why this offseason they went out and, you know, even last year, they did get a little athletic with Isaiah Jackson. I think he's super athletic, um, but getting Mather and just like an athletic freak. And we we know that he's got bounce and he's going to be a perfect running mate next to Tyrese Halliburton because of that. And he can get to the basket. He can shoot the three and he shoots it at a good clip, too. So that's what makes it exciting. It's like he's got a, a well-rounded game that really is going to fit in well with all these young guys. I don't really think it matters yeah. who's going to be out there. Um He's just got to stay locked in um, if he's not getting maybe as many looks as he's used to, because, you know, when you go from being the number one option, like you talked about at Arizona to being the third or fourth, maybe um, you have to adjust your game a little bit and become kind of more of a role player. Cause Christy Duarte talked about it last year, just to kind of look at uh, a guy that was a rookie last year, he started because there was injuries to Levert and, and TJ Warren. So he starts the year. And then when Levert comes back, they put him back on the bench and started like, Justin Holiday and Levert, and he said that it was hard for him to adjust to coming off the bench after being a starter for so long at Oregon, and then, you know, being a starter with the Pacers, and he didn't like coming off the bench. It just threw off his routine, so I, I think little things like that are just, it's it's one of those learning processes for these young guys, and that's one of the things where I'm curious with Matherin, like, 
how much of the reins do they give him and what, where do they utilize him the most? But uh, Caitlin Cooper brought this up in one of the podcasts she was on and she talked about how, you know, the Pacers summer league team actually ran some of the offensive sets that they ran for uh, Matherin at Arizona to make it more comfortable for him. So you have to wonder if they will implement some of those play calls into the Pacers playbook this upcoming season to just get him more comfortable with some of the looks he's already been familiar with. I would imagine the answer to that question would be yes. Yeah. And, and maybe it's not, maybe it's not with all of the starters, right? Like I, I don't think, I, I don't think you necessarily want to want to build, you know, too many plays out of the playbook around Matherin, but especially when he might be in like a, like a secondary lineup where maybe Andrew Nemhard's the point guard. He's another young guy we could talk about later on in this podcast, but maybe some of these, the, these second units, right. They, they do throw more of those plays out there. If Matherin's supposed to be a, a featured guy, uh, may, maybe a sixth man, if he isn't the starter and he's supposed to carry some of these bench units, maybe that is something that they do. It would not shock me for, for them to do that in the slightest. That's yeah. a, that's a great observation made by, by Caitlin, Caitlin Cooper, yeah. one of the best basketball minds we, we have in the space. <laughs> certainly. Sure. Um, so that's a lot about Matherin. I mentioned that we were going to transition into Tyrese Halliburton and we, we can't have a conversation about <laughs> Mr. Halliburton without me just asking you right off the bat, that, that trade was a big deal, Alex. That was, huh. that was a Demonis Sabonis, Tyrese Halliburton swap. What, what, what was your initial reaction when that midseason trade actually happened? So I, I'll be honest. Like I, I didn't want the Pacers to trade Sabonis. Um, I was hoping they would move Turner instead. But when Turner got injured, I, I think that it kind of like was the uh, writing on the wall was like, okay, Turner's value is super low now. There's a chance he might not come back for the rest of the season. If he does, how serious is this foot injury because you know Turner has had a couple of different injuries with his feet so to me I was like okay uh, are they really going to trade Sabonis maybe they will I don't know I thought they might just sell low for for miles but when I saw the trade come across from Woj um, I was just absolutely stunned like he said on air that Tyrese Halliburton was involved because all the rumors have been saying De'Aaron Fox De'Aaron Fox De'Aaron Fox yeah and while I don't like De'Aaron or don't dislike De'Aaron Fox I think he's a good player. I just didn't want to have him on that contract that he's on with the inefficiency that he has from behind the three-point line. And he can be a defensive liability quite a bit too. So I, I was like, please do not make this a bonus trade for Fox. Like I, I know we need a point guard desperately here in Indiana. Brogdon can't stay healthy. But at this point, I just didn't think Fox was the right guy. So when I saw the trade going through for Halliburton, I said, they gave up Halliburton? He's only in year two right now of this contract. And the crazy thing is, is like Halliburton was so committed to them. And yeah, and he, he wanted to be the face of that franchise. Yes. I mean, and that's, what's crazy. It's just like, he loves Sacramento. He fully embraced going in there, trying to revive that franchise and putting them back into the playoffs. I mean, that was his ultimate goal and he's an incredible human being. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. Demontis Sabonis is a fantastic player and um, you can make the argument that he's better right now than Halliburton is, but I think projecting wise, there's no doubt in my mind that Halliburton is going to be a better player in the long term. Um, it, it made sense, obviously, for both teams to kind of make a deal because the Pacers had a lot of bigs, the Kings had a lot of guards. Why they took Davion Mitchell, I don't understand that uh, as much <laughs> last year, but they did what they did, and I think it kind of put them in a situation where um, they overloaded and made a trade, and they got a really good player in Sabonis, but. The fact that the Pacers finally got a guy in Halliburton, 
one thing that somebody said, and I thought it was great, I forget who said it, so I apologize, but they said the fact that Rick Carlisle was so willing to just hand the reins over to Halliburton so quick. Um, that's not who Carlisle is. We know no, that's not issues, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, not having kind of control of what's going on with the offense. That's why him and Rondo got into it in Dallas quite a bit. Uh, Luka Doncic as well. So maybe learning from his past mistakes with Luka, I think has nothing to do with that, but also just like his trust with Halliburton. Halliburton just raved about their relationship. So I just feel like this was the perfect player to get into Indiana. And one of the main things too, is because of his Midwest ties that he has of going to Iowa state growing up there, met his girlfriend there. That to me, like he's okay being in a smaller market where there was rumblings for years about, well, Sabonis didn't want to be here potentially, or he never publicly said it, but there was rumblings about it. And a lot of people said his girlfriend is from California. They want to be out there, which I get it. He was out there during the summer. So with that being said, it made a lot of sense for both teams. I'm hoping the Kings get in the playoffs this year because I think they have a decent enough team to be a playing team. But um, in terms of the Pacers and what direction they're going, I'm rambling. I'm sorry. But um, getting a face of a franchise was huge because the Pacers would not commit to DeMontis Sabonis as the face of the franchise. I mean, Kevin Pritchard came in an article with The Athletic and basically just said, we're trying to manufacture a star here after he had just you know, been an all-star for two years in a row, kind of a slap in the face to Sabonis. And I know that did affect him because Pritchard publicly apologized on Twitter about it for misspeaking. So the fact that they've just openly said, this is our franchise guy. I think that this like gives Pacer fans and the team, like a little bit of like insight on what's actually going on and where they value him, like calling him the next Reggie Miller or hoping he is the next Reggie Miller. That's, that's a big task for a young player to try to achieve but yep i think halliburton has the personality and the work ethic to be that guy so that that's okay that you were rambling i might be getting you into <laughs> rambling mode again by by asking really the follow-up to that is yeah. that they made that trade and what the pacers really did was they capitalized on that that sacramento king's desperation that, yeah. that we have seen multiple times throughout the years. And this time it's, it's no exception. You mentioned how many guards they had on the roster. They obviously can't, you know, share the ball evenly between De'Aaron Fox, Tyrese Halliburton, Davion Mitchell, and they needed to make a move for another big. And you have Indiana sitting here where they, they have multiple big men. They also have a few waiting in the wings. I mean, they ended up making the, the deal with, for Jalen Smith. They drafted Isaiah Jackson. You still have Gogo Bataze on the roster. Like, they needed to also unload a big, and you mentioned Miles Turner. Obviously, that that didn't happen. I, I think that Miles Turner can play a, an interesting role should he remain with the Pacers for this upcoming season. But they needed to offload one of those bigs, and this to me is the Indiana Pacers front office being incredibly smart, incredibly calculated, and capitalizing on the opportunity that was in front of them to essentially say, "Look, we have a star big man. We're willing to make a swap." are you willing to part with this guy who was committed to your franchise? But we think he would also have a, a great role with us in the return. We think we're, this is the direction that we want to go as a franchise. This is who we're willing to target in a trade. We're willing to give you some bonus for him. And I think the Kings hindsight, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they still do the deal. Maybe they don't. But I think what Halliburton's shown 
through his first two years is that I agree with you, Alex. He's going to be certainly on his ascension for a number of years in, in the immediate short term, and he could certainly hit a peak that's greater yeah. than Sabonis's peak. But Sacramento's desperation to get back into the playoffs led to that trade happening. And I just I, I go back to to the Halliburton deal in general, the the number of draftees that they've brought in, some of the moves that they've made. Don't you kind of get the feeling from Pacers fans and, and even from, from your own perspective that there can be a better sense of trust with this Pacers for an office and, and, and the direction that they're going and that they're going to continue to make the right moves moving forward? I would hope so. <laughs> I mean, the Pacers, if you look at their like last three best players, have all been dealt with in like the last five years. Um, Paul George was uh, traded in 2017, Victor Oladipo uh, two years ago, and then last year or this year, technically, DeMontis Sabonis. So, and that's why it's important to get some of that trust back, right? Which I right. would hope that they're on their way to doing. Right. And I think I will say this because Victor Oladipo put out a cryptic tweet about three or four weeks ago. We talked about it on our podcast. Like somebody just like tagged him and said something like, you know, I liked VO before he left. He really changed and all this stuff. And he basically said, don't blame me. He said, you, you should be looking, you know, elsewhere. It wasn't just me. It was Paul. It was Domas. It's always us. It's never anybody else's <laughs> fault. You know, well, I, I think Victor's a little bit delusional with everything. We talked about this. I mean, I understand Paul leaving and Sabonis leaving. He really didn't ask to be traded. And um, he didn't say anything bad about the organization once he was traded. So Sabonis kind of kept it pretty clean. But um, the breakups have been a little bit rough. And I think the Pacers know they've got to be better about how they handle things and how they treat their star players. Um, for the longest time, I know this sounds crazy, but like they would never do tribute videos. Well, they did multiple tribute videos last year. They did a full out one for all three Kings players that were traded, Jeremy Lamb, Justin Holiday, and Sabonis. And they even did one for Karis Levert when he came back. So I think that the Pacers are learning from their prior mistakes that they've got to kind of be butt kissers a little bit to these guys because they're in a smaller market. And they really have to make them feel welcomed more probably and more appreciated than maybe like the Lakers would. Right. So that, that to me is where I think they stand. But no, I think that Halliburton, uh, you know, he's already being called the face of the franchise by everybody. And so by him hearing that, I'm sure that it's a little bit different because he thought he was going to be the face of the Kings franchise at one point, but um, because the Pacers have openly said things and went into articles and stuff, I, I think that the trust is there. And I believe that he is going to be the full-on leader of this team moving forward. And um, I, and I know Miles Turner has been there for like seven, seven years now. Um, but I just feel like no offense to Miles, but like he's uh, he's not on Halliburton's tier in terms of importance to the franchise moving forward. So um, I think Halliburton knows he could be here for a long time and uh, make something special happen here with Indiana. And I think he wants to do that based off what he said. And he definitely seems like, he, he's the type of leader that you want to move mm -hmm. your franchise in a different direction, right? You literally want him to be the face of your franchise. Everything he does with the media, everything you hear about him behind the scenes. Like I, I, I've never heard one bad word about right. Tyrese Halliburton. And I, I truly believe that just from how he carries himself. He, he loves doing, doing the podcast with, with JJ Reddick, old man, the three. And he's like, he's always so um, enlightening. He's entertaining. He's upbeat, positive that's the type of guy I want in the locker room. And I think that's why it was so smart for Indiana to go out and make a trade to, to bring in a player like him. And those were some of his best qualities that, that I thought he had before the draft, but I had some questions about 
how high his ceiling was. I had some questions about what type of shot maker he could be. And then lo and behold, within like a season and a half in the NBA, I mean, Alex, this, this guy has a go-to scoring move as a guard. That that yeah. that fadeaway three going to his right yeah, is like almost looks, unguardable. <laughs> and, and it looks funky. He's got a weird looking shot. And It is uh, funky. Yep. The Pacers are accustomed to that because Reggie Miller had a weird looking shot for as great of a three-point shooter as he was. But I mean, the fact that he shot 41.6% last year from three for the Pacers, averaged 17 and a half points and almost had 10 assists with 9.6 uh, assists per game. I mean, it just, that was just scratching the surface of what he can become. And with him having the, the reins, like you ask, like, what is his full potential? And that's a tough question because I don't think right now he's that Paulo Boncaro that we talked about a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. I still don't see him as that A-level player, but I don't really know if Reggie Miller was ever an A-level player. I think he was, you know, good in moments, but he was, you know, clearly tiers below like guys like Jordan or even Barkley, guys like that. So, I mean, for me personally, I I think Halliburton brings something this team uh, desperately needs, and that's great leadership. They've not had a good leader on this team probably since David West was still here. Um, I mean, Paul George didn't really embrace being the leader. He embraced being the best player, but there's a difference between being the best player and being the leader of the team. So personally for me, I think that's one thing. Halliburton's got his head on straight, incredible guy, uh, loves being involved in the community. Uh, There's a video on the Pacers page where he went out with Matherin and played pickup ball with a bunch of kids at some parks, like just trying to get involved. I mean, and, and you talked about nobody can say a bad thing about him. Like when we did our podcast interview with him uh, on setting the pace, he was just so cool. Like we were told like 10 to 15 minutes. And we're like, okay. And he was like, nah, I got, I remember you tweeting about the length of yes. time. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, he was like, no, I got like 30, 40 minutes, whatever you guys want to do. He's like, that's totally fine with me. We'll just keep going. We'll see how it goes. But like you were talking about off air, like internet connections, he had just got set up in his new place in California out there where he's working out and his internet was kind of bad. And so anytime the internet kind of lagged, he would have us re-ask the question and redo it for us. Like, it was just incredible because how often do athletes really just take the time for, you know, people they've never even met to, to, to do that. So I think that speaks volumes to who he is. And, you know, if he's treating a guy like me, that's just a random podcaster like that, how is he treating the guys that he's even closer with? So I think that's where I can just see where the Pacers just fell in love with his work ethic and uh, not saying Sabonis isn't a hard worker. Sabonis works his tail off. Don't get me wrong. I mean, he's a really talented player, but they needed someone that's going to make everybody else better. And I think Savonis did that to a certain degree, but not at the level that Halliburton can make these guys better. And any video that you watched when uh, Rick Carlisle was calling the guys we drafted, whether it was Kendall Brown, whether it was Matherin, whether it was uh, Andrew Nimhart, he's like, you get to play with Tyrese Halliburton. Isn't that pretty cool? <laughs> you know, that was his <laughs> selling point on Indiana. And that's part of the reason DeAndre Ayton had interest in coming to Indiana, even though he ultimately went back to the Suns and restricted free agency. He was very, in, uh, he was very excited about the idea of playing with Halliburton. So this is the kind of guy the Pacers needed to kind of rebrand their franchise because uh, if he can get, you know, a, potentially the best free agent in the market to at least sign a uh, an offer sheet with him, that's better than what they would have gotten if he wasn't here. So that that's where I think he makes a big difference. And 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 I agree with you talking about potential. I mean, he he's only going into his third year in the NBA, so that is he he could very well just be scratching the surface. I I think it's safe to say that. It's, it's incredibly rare for 
a, a point guard to be the best player on a championship team. I mean, we, we've seen that throughout history, but can they be the second best player on a championship team? Yes. So what if you found that in, in Tyrese Halliburton? And what if you found like the third best player in Benedict Mather and you start to piece together some of the role players like a, like a Chris Duarte and you have a number of bigs like an Isaiah Jackson and a Jalen Smith who can do the dirty work for you. And you, you have some interesting guys, some interesting veterans coming off the bench. Like you start to look at this Pacers team and, and, and yeah, there, there's a chance they, they could be fairly bad this upcoming NBA season, but they're, I think they're going to be fun to watch. And there's, there's a number of intriguing pieces here to the point where you start to look around and it's all about, you give these guys a few more years, right. To, to get more NBA games under their belt, as you continue to look for that number one player. And if you mm-hmm. can find that number one player, all of a sudden, really what the Pacers have done, like they, they, they've built out what could be a full team around a, a number one option. And that to me is what's so intriguing uh, uh, about what the Pacers have done in building this roster, but especially with bringing in Halliburton, because having a guy like Tyrese, who is very accustomed to sharing the basketball, he wants to get everybody else involved. He doesn't, he doesn't dominate the ball in the way of a scorer. He does want to get everybody involved. He wants to be the facilitator, right? But yeah. those are the types of guys who, as you said, will make everyone else around them better. He'll, he'll bring the best out of everyone else who's on the floor with him. So don't, don't you think that's going to be a strength as you guys look to develop and build this team while you're trying to find the number one option is maybe somebody like Halliburton can help bring the best out of everybody else while you're still looking for that top guy. No, I mean, you said it perfectly. And you know, just thinking about this upcoming draft, like the Pacers could be finding that number one guy in the draft if they are lucky enough to get probably a top three pick, I would say. Um, uh, number one, obviously, would be the ultimate goal here to get Victor Wembanyama. You put him with this mix of players, like, watch out. This team could be seriously uh, a threat in the Eastern Conference in a couple of seasons, but don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But um, Halliburton is that guy that's going to make everybody better. Look at how much Jalen Smith popped off when he came here to Indiana. Um, Isaiah Jackson got more of an opportunity with Turner being out and Sabonis traded. You know, he looked pretty good in the pick and roll. And, you know, having a legit lob threat with with Halliburton was huge. Um, Even Goga Batadze, like Goga's had a really rough NBA career, you know, getting drafted to a team that starts two centers and they stagger their minutes. He never got playing time and you're not going to get better going in the G League and dominating where there's really not anybody that can guard you and then not getting any consistent run and then being thrown in there every once in a while. Like I think Goga's still got a lot of potential. He just needs to get consistent playing time. I'm not sure if he's even going to be able to find it this year with how the roster is kind of built. Um, I, I think that could be potentially why they were looking at moving Turner, maybe to open up some more playing time for a guy like Goga, just to see what they have because he is in his final year, but Halliburton was making everybody around him better. And that is just something that he can do. And personally, like, if he's an all-star level player and then you you feel like maybe Matherin can be an all-star level player, if you get another player to go with that, that can be like a superstar. I mean, this is going to be a serious, serious team. So that that is why the Pacers have to continue just to keep establishing these solid players. And they may never get that superstar. But like you said, if, if Halliburton's able to develop Matherin into that, maybe even Duarte comes into that or Jalen Smith, you're talking about four guys that are really, really, really good players. You know, you're looking at a team that's built similar to how the Pacers were built um, 
you know, while Paul George was kind of ascending into that superstar, you know, before Paul got there, it was a mixture of really good guys that made them super competitive. But, you know, ultimately you do need that superstar in the NBA to get to that championship level, but they were really close. And um, that's where I think this team is heading, but it's going to be a few years before they get there. But Halliburton is the perfect guy, in my opinion, to kind of steer the ship until they do find that superstar. But um, I just don't know if Halliburton can become that superstar level player. I I don't want to say that he can't because, I mean, he's really talented, but I just don't see it right now unless he, you know, takes some massive leaps over the next couple of seasons. You mentioned that that Paul George led squad that that came together and was was giving everybody else in the Eastern Conference fits throughout playoff runs. They didn't ultimately get to the finals, but they were certainly a, a very tough out in the playoffs. It, it, it is a little eerily similar with, with how this team is kind of being built, right? Like that 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 Pacers group was a lot of homegrown Indiana talent. They made the move to go get David West. Well, in this case. They're, they're, they're drafting some really nice pieces. They're going to bring them up. They're going to continue to. They might be able to get a high draft pick again in 23. They made a trade, not this time for, for David West, but for Tyrese Halliburton, right? There is a yeah. little bit of a similar vibe as to how they're, they're building this team. And I do feel like when, when, when you're able to lay out a blueprint like that, where you're able to bring in draft and develop your own talent and then make a move or two to go find some pieces that better complement that talent, that... That to me is that that's the championship blueprint. That's literally what we saw on the stage in the finals with the Warriors and the Celtics. And I don't know, I'm not, I'm not saying the paces are going to, are going to get there. And I don't think you necessarily say the same thing either, but it just seems like that's the kind of direction that this team is headed. And that's why I love, it's another reason why I love the move that they made for Tyrese Halliburton. You, you have some interesting yeah. pieces in place, go get the guy who can make those pieces better to see what you have with the rest of the roster. Then hopefully you figured more of that out. Then you can go get that number one guy. And then from that point, then you're just tinkering with the roster to try and mix and yeah. match around the number one guy and then go compete in the playoffs. So th- to me, it just seems like they're following a, a very good blueprint for success down the road. So I- I'm excited yeah. for Pacers fans as much as you are, Alex, don't <laughs> worry. So we, no, I, was I, say, I agree with you there. I, I think you're right on. And it's like, you know, the Pacers are treating Halliburton like he is a max player. He's going to get a max contract. I would be shocked if he doesn't when his contract is up. Um, the Pacers are going to do everything they can to roll out the red carpet for him. They've already done that. And I think that only helps the other guys around him. I, I kind of talked about this earlier, but I want to just reiterate it because if you know who the guy is, you know who the leader of the team is, you can follow suit when there's no leader. It's hard to know who's the guy. And I think you need that when you're playing basketball, you need someone to rely on because like once Oladipo went down with the injuries, it was somebody else's team on a, every different night. It could have been Brogdon one night, Sabonis one night, TJ Warren the other night, you know, um, that is where I think when they were trying to build a team that you didn't really have that a level player, um, it caused some issues internally in the locker room. And that's why you saw a lot of turnover in terms of coaches and frustrated uh, players with each other, because uh, the results weren't what they were when Oladipo was healthy. And I think knowing that Halliburton is the guy, it's going to make things a lot easier for your Jalen Smiths, for your Isaiah Jacksons, for your Duarte's and your Matherins to know, okay, I don't have to bear the whole load. I'm going to be a huge part of this, right? But I don't have to worry about, everything falling on my shoulders. I can rely on 
Halliburton to be that guy. But the nice thing is, is Halliburton isn't always going to be the guy. And honestly, um, he needs to be better at this, is not being such a pass first guy. Uh, we talked, I talked with Alex Kennedy about this and um, his, his shooting trainer, Drew Hanlon, will uh, always message him and be like, 14, 14 is the number of attempts you need to get to every single night in terms of shot attempts. Because if he doesn't do that, then um, he's being too passive. And I think that's something that he's going to have to work on as he becomes that face of the franchise. But knowing that you have a guy that you can go to definitely makes it a lot easier, I think, in terms of developing a team and, and growing that chemistry. So outside of Miles Turner, we've talked about the other big fish in the Indiana Pacers pond in, in Halliburton, as well as new number six overall pick, Benedict Matherin. Let's, before we cut out on this podcast, let's talk about a few of the other young, interesting role players that they have on the team, particularly the two bigs. We've said both of their names already, Isaiah Jackson and Jalen Smith. I will preface this question to you, Alex, by saying I am a big Isaiah Jackson believer. Mm -hmm. I firmly believe you should have been picked in the lottery. I gave him a lottery grade during his draft class, and I still fully believe that he's going to be a legitimate impact big man in the NBA, particularly for the Pacers moving forward. But then you have Jalen Smith as well, who you, you talked about, you alluded to how he ended up having and finding real success in Indiana in the second half of the season, finished the year with an 18.4 PER, which to me is incredibly impressive considering he didn't see the light of day in Phoenix yeah. before he came over to the Pacers. So two really in, intriguing big men, who who is who are you more interested to watch heading into this upcoming season between those two big men, Isaiah Jackson or Jalen Smith? I mean, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> they both bring different things to the table. I, I will say I'm probably more interested to see Jalen Smith at this point because they gave him the starting position by bringing him back. He took less money to be a pacer. Um, that is just something that you don't ever usually see, especially nope. from a young guy like what was Phoenix thinking? Like to not even just like pick up the option. Like it's just so bizarre. Like you never really see that. Um, they could have easily traded him this off season. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't understand what they were thinking, but you know, the Pacers pretty much just, you know, rented Torrey Craig for half the season and traded him back to the Suns to, you know, get their 10th overall pick in the same draft that Tyrese Halliburton was taken. And now they have two players from that lottery, or well, actually three with Neesmith off the bench as well, um, you know, on their roster. So I, I personally think like Jalen Smith, last year he shot the ball incredibly well. And I think that only helped because of how much uh, the floor is so much open, uh, more, more open when Halliburton's got the ball in his hands, right? Yep. Um, I, I will say this. I think Jalen Smith is actually pretty athletic. And I think people kind of sleep on that a little bit. No, he he's is. Got, yep. He's got the ability to really be a nice rim protector. Um, right, be right next to Miles Turner as well, because you know you're used to Sabonis. Well, Sabonis wasn't a great three point shooter, and he wasn't very agile. So, uh, being able to switch on defenders was something that he struggled with. And I think Jalen still has a lot of work to do on the defensive side of things. But you know, if Turner goes to block a shot, you still have a secondary rim protector, even though he's not as good as Turner, right there with Jalen Smith at the rim. So, I'm curious to see how he develops as that. But one of the things I'm really interested in with both Jalen Smith and Miles Turner, we're used to both of them being more pick and pop players with the when they're the primary screener. And Sabonis was always a roller, right? So Isaiah Jackson and Terry Taylor, two guys off the bench, they're more rollers as well. I'm curious 
if we're going to see more rolling from, from Jalen Smith in that pick and pop pick and roll situation with Halliburton as the primary ball handler, or if he's going to be more of a popper and kind of let Halliburton have the lane open to himself. I'm curious to see what they do there because that to me, like I think miles Turner, if you look at his numbers um, he's taken fewer shots at the rim and they've just decreased more and more as the years go or decrease more and more as the years go on because he's become more of an outside guy camping out there and not getting that opportunity. So I, I'm curious to see how he plays in that role, both Turner and Jalen Smith. But I just want to see if this Jalen Smith end of the season, you know, hot streak that we saw is legit or if it was, you know, a flash in the pan for a little bit of the season. Um, when it comes to Isaiah Jackson, though, I will say this. Um, I was kind of surprised the Pacers took him when they traded Aaron Holiday for that pick with uh, the 31st pick in, in the 2021 draft because they already had three bigs on the roster. I was thinking, why are they going after another big? Like, what's the point of this? But I, I like the idea that Isaiah Jackson can play the four and the five. And if he can really develop that outside jump shot, he's going to be much more versatile uh, yep. than he already is. If he can't hit that consistently, then he's going to be a little bit easier to guard. But um, he's got really good athleticism. I don't think, in my personal opinion, from what I've seen from him in summer league and last year, um, I just don't think he's maybe as terrific as people say he is as guarding one through five. Still has to work on that, but I do believe that he has the potential to be good at it, but he's not there yet. And I think he needs to put on some more muscle to really be uh, consistently playing the center position because even though the center position uh, is kind of like hit or miss in terms of like quality of player on your team, like you got a lot of really good centers and then you have some um, okay centers, but he's just not big enough to hang with that mid-tier level of like the Sabonis, the Vucevic, the even the Valanciunas is like, they're just going to bully him. He's got to put some more muscle on him if he really wants to be a legit five. So that is my concern with him. But I think overall, like um, if you're looking at potential-wise, who's got the higher potential, you can make the case for either of them. But I think that they could play really well next to each other um, also because they kind of have those two different skill sets that mesh well together. I thought you were about to go the direction of Isaiah Jackson and terrific to which I was going to sharply respond. Listen, I have a great time watching Isaiah Jackson G league tape. Okay. If everybody, if anybody out there listening needs something to do the night of them listening to this podcast, go, go pop on some Isaiah Jackson highlights from him in the G league. He was a freaking monster in the G league last year. But that, that being said, I agree with you about them playing next to each other. You mentioned the, the role man aspect between some other bigs. Isaiah Jackson is, is really the role man, and he's working on the jump shot. I think the jump shot is going to come around for him, which played into my lottery projection for him. I think that will be there. He's really the role man out of the three right now. My question to you, because you, you mentioned Jalen Smith and Miles Turner possibly playing um, a, a little bit differently. You mentioned the role aspect. Can, can we see some more post touches from either of them? Because J- Jalen Smith was Jalen Smith was a, a fairly productive post player at, at Maryland, right? And I, I think Miles Turner has some of that still in, in his game too, albeit maybe maybe it's not as familiar to him anymore because he's just gotten so used to camping out beyond the three point line, doing his best Carl Anthony Towns in, impersonation, but. Can we get more a little more post game from from either of them, or you you don't even want to see that at all? You're like, let's just face the floor, let's just bomb threes. I'm not opposed to that. I just don't know if Carlisle likes that. I mean, 
he's all about playing that four out five out thing. Um, I mean, you barely saw Sabonis get post up touches when he was there with Carlisle. A lot of dribble handoff, a lot of pick and roll, uh, a lot of four out with the guy in the dunker spot, just trying to create different things here and there. I don't well, know. Sh- really... Shoving Sabonis to the corner is never well, the answer in no. an offense, but that I, I digress. Right. And there was a lot of times where I'm like, why is Sabonis not involved in this play? Uh, like he just, he's such a great creator. <laughs> like he, he, he was the one that was kind of the point guard for the team, even though he was the center right on offense. But I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think that Carlisle would be opposed to like posting up if there's a mismatch, but I cannot, I can't imagine them force feeding miles, turning the ball one-on-one against somebody in the post or even Jalen Smith. I mean, uh, that does not seem like the Carlisle offense that I watched last year. Uh, maybe I'm missing something and they did do it a little bit more than I remember, but I'm um, not saying 15 post touches. I'm right. saying if, if they got to add a little bit of a different dimension, little wrinkle into the offense, that's something that, you, you, you know, I, I think when NBA teams are, are scouting against the Pacers, they're looking at both Miles Turner and Jalen Smith as these guys just want to shoot it from deep. They want to space the floor. Right. They want to bomb it. Maybe Jalen Smith does something a, a, a tad bit interesting off the bounce, pulling up for a jumper, but they don't really see them as those post-up style players like they actually were back in college. So maybe it's just you go to a two, three possessions per game and just throw a team off guard is all I'm saying. Can we at least get that? Yeah, I, I would be fine with that. I, this, I'm, that's what I'm worried about the most is just like not having a low post threat or, a, or a, yeah, low post threat would be the right way to say that, especially with, with Smith and Turner starting. If, if Isaiah Jackson was starting, um, I wouldn't worry about it as much because that's what he does. He lives in the yep. low post. He's not an outside guy very often. Uh, not that he can't be, but I don't want to see uh, all my bigs always at the three-point line. <laughs> I like my well, big well, J- Jalen Smith and Isaiah Jackson are also both pretty good offensive rebounders too. Right. So you want right. them near the basket at times. Yeah. They, they both have a good nose for the basketball. And that's one thing too, like, um, you know, Turner's known for being a mediocre rebounder. I mean, seven rebounds yep. a game for a starter, like uh, a starting center, you would prefer that to be closer to like nine or 10. So that'll be interesting to see. Cause I think Jalen Smith averaged close to what Turner was averaging 13 and seven last year with his time at the Pacers. But um minute wise it was pretty close as well so i'm curious to see like without sabonis there how much more of a difference are they how much more aggressive are they on the glass um obviously Jalen didn't play with demontis but you know turner did and i'm I'm curious to see how turner is utilized knowing that he's going to be put into a different spot i think you probably will see more post-up touches from turner than Jalen smith would be my guess because Turner actually doesn't have a bad mid-range game uh, in the post, mid-post, when he can uh, hit that shot off the backboard. He's done pretty good at that. So uh, it just hasn't happened very often. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not sure exactly how they plan on utilizing everybody because there's so much misinformation out there in terms of do they want to keep Turner long-term? Do they want to trade him? Does he want to be here? Does he not want to be here? I mean, I've heard everything. So um, it, it's, it's tough. But this is where I would have really liked DeAndre Ayton on this team um, he would have been fantastic. I didn't want to open up that wound, man. I, I didn't well, want to open that one up. It's I would okay. Have I, you all the way. I mean, if they could have got him, that'd have been a pipe dream player to go with Halliburton. Just be honest yep. with you. Um, but with that being said, I mean, it, it doesn't take away from what these guys can bring, but they just don't have that low post presence that uh, that DeAndre Aiden has. I mean, and the efficiency at the low at the rim either. So, I mean, that guy is just a, a super good player, and I think he's a little bit underrated. 
to answer your question about Jalen Smith's rebounding per 36 minutes for his career, 11 and a half rebounds per game for his career per 36 minutes, almost four offensive rebounds per game. That's pretty good. What did he do? What did he do last year without the per 36? Because we're projecting with 36, obviously. Sure. So last year per game with the Pacers, he was 7.6 rebounds per game, 2.1 offensive rebounds per game. Okay. So 20 some minutes, right? 24, 25, something like that. 24 at 0.7 minutes per game. You are okay. correct, sir. I, I know too much about that, obviously, <laughs> off the top of my head, but that's what I'm e- saying. Either yeah. way, good, good rebounder, right? Good rebounder. Right. Give him eight more minutes a game. He should be in double digits. You know, I yep. want to see him be a double, double guy. I think that's going to be huge for his development. Um, if he can just consistently be aggressive out there. And like you said, offensive rebounds are huge, creating those second opportunities for your team. Uh, you can win ball games that way. So that just being scrappy is going to be huge for the Pacers moving forward. And they got to get better on that side of the, the basketball. Cause if you're bad in rebounding and you, you know, cause the Pacers have notoriously been known for a terrible three point shooting team. They don't shoot enough threes, like the lowest amount of attempts in the NBA, like two or three years ago. And they weren't a great rebounding team either. And they just constantly got beat in, in those two areas. And I, I just feel like that is one where, where they can get better, just being more of a u- unified rebounding team and not just relying on one player to do it all. I'll get you out of here on this question. Chris Duarte, any mm. particular expectations for him heading into year two? Is there there? Are there anything you want to see from his game on either side of the ball as he goes into his sophomore campaign? Man, I just – I he was awesome last year in his rookie season. I mean, I'm really sad that he got injured. It yep. uh, looks like he's recovered from that. But defensively, he was probably one of the better wing defenders they had last year. And he's only six foot five, six foot six, so, you know, like not super long. But he was really good defensively last year for this team. And any lineup you looked at analytically, he was – a part of the five in terms of best defenders on the team. And he's got a great shot. I mean, I love watching him shoot the basketball. He's super smooth and he's actually really confident in his game. So uh, he had like that huge breakout game against the Hornets. And I'm like, okay, who is this guy? Like he, this guy he, is... he was rookie of the year for the first fifth of the season. <laughs> I know. I mean, and that's how good he was. I mean, even playing against Miami, like he hits his huge three, like way beyond the three point line against PJ Tucker, like right in his face. And you're thinking, okay, this guy's not afraid of the moment. Uh, I'm excited to see what he can be like because he was never really healthy once Halliburton got traded. So that is uh, what I'm really excited to see. And we talked about it a little bit earlier. I want to see him start over Buddy Heald just because I don't feel like Buddy Heald's part of the team's long-term plans. And Halliburton's in year two. You're embracing a youth movement. I want to see Halliburton, Duarte, and Ben Matherin get as many minutes together this season as they possibly can to develop that chemistry and see what you have moving forward. So, um, I think he's going to make them better defensively. Um, I think he's going to be really good for Matherin because of, you know, he's going to challenge Matherin. And I thought him and Matherin played well in that first game together in the summer league that we saw small sample size, but you know, there's going to be mistakes. It's year two, but um, you know, one thing that I was really fascinated by Duarte, he he said that Rick Carlisle calls the mid range jail, but he (laughs) likes to play in the mid range. So yes, he does. I kind of wonder if Carlisle might let him, you know, flourish a little bit more in the mid-range because he knows he can do it. So I, I think that's something to keep an eye on if he gets more mid-range opportunities to be that kind of guy. Uh, I think there's a chance he might get more of an opportunity to do that if 
he is coming off the bench as the sixth man though. So uh, it'll be uh, cool to see how he's utilized, but um, I will ask you this because I'm not as familiar with this player's game because he's new to the Pacers and that's Aaron Neesmith. Um, I know you, you know, your draft coverage pretty well. What are your thoughts on Neesmith's fit with the Pacers? Aaron Neesmith's been, uh, I think it's fair to say, we'll call it a letdown uh, uh, up yeah. to this point in his career. He was one of the best pure shooters coming out at the time in his draft class. Now we're coming around to him. He's 22 years old, trying to look for a new start in Indiana. It Listen, Carlisle, you, you talked about it earlier on this pod. Carlisle just wants spacing, right? He wants three-point shooting wherever he can get it. That's what Neesmith is going to provide for you. Yeah. He's not going to give you a lot of defense. He's not going to give you a lot of on-ball scoring. He's going to be that catch-and-shoot guy who's facing the floor from the corner, and that's that's pretty much exclusively his role on an NBA floor right now. So you talked about how bad the, the defense has been with the Pacers, which is something we, we didn't touch on that with, with Halliburton, but that, that that's yeah. okay. <laughs> if, if you're trying to improve your defense – I don't know how many minutes you want to give Aaron Neesmith on a night-to-night basis, despite how good he can be from three-point range if he's on. So I'm assuming that your answer to that would be then maybe he's going to still be buried deep on the bench in Indiana. I don't know. I don't I don't know. What, what, what do you think about that evaluation? Man, it's, it's tough because I think the Pacers believe in his three-point shooting, even though it's kind of regressed in the NBA. I feel like with Boston, he didn't really get the fair chance to kind of develop as a player, obviously, because they were competing uh, in the NBA Finals last year. So can you blame him? No, not at all. So for me, I I like the idea of Neesmith. The fact they traded Brogdon for him and a bad first-round pick and a bunch of salary filler, like I think it shows the Pacers believe in him to a certain degree. He looked really bad in Summer League, I won't lie, but I (laughs) kind of feel bad for him because like he was out golfing when he found that he got traded. He like – is in year three, so he technically didn't have to play, but he wanted to, like, get a chance to play, so he flies in from across the country uh, to play with the Pacers and never really got a chance to, like, go through all, like, the practices that they had either. So, you know, he kind of got thrown into the fire, and, you know, it was not a good shooting performance. So I'm hoping that with a good training camp, with Halliburton kind of encouraging him, he can find that shot again. And I think what when I talk about Matherin doing that shooting drill, I'm sure Carlisle is going to be having him do that all the time. Yep. You know, you got to get your shot back because that's what made you get drafted as a lottery player. So personally for me, I'm excited to see what he can do. Um, I'm hoping he can be a little bit more reliable on defense than you were acting like because uh, I don't <laughs> I, well, know. I, I, just... I, guess, I guess I say that, like, if he's not, like, what's going to make him, I, I guess, get more minutes at times than having somebody like a Terry Taylor or an O'Shea set on the floor? Yeah, it w- I mean... would be what I'm thinking. It's interesting because I'm not sure where he's going to slot into the rotation because at this point, you know, you know, McConnell's the backup. And if Duarte yep. starting, you know, Buddy Hill's going to be playing the backup too. So now you can either go big with O'Shea at the three, Isaiah at the four, and Goga at the five, or you could do Terry Taylor, O'Shea, and Isaiah, or you could do Aaron Neesmith at the three, O'Shea at the four, and Isaiah yep. at the five. And then Goga and Terry Taylor are like your 11th and 12th men. So there's definitely different combinations. And if anybody watches the Pacers or has watched Rick Carlisle the last 15, 20 years he's been coaching, his rotations don't ever make sense. They're never the same. They're always based on matchup, and he's always throwing different guys in the mix. Like O'Shea Brissett plays really well for like the first five games and doesn't see the floor for like 
four weeks almost. And it's like, they're playing Tory Craig over him. So it's one of those things where it's like, Carlisle will just kind of tinker with the lineups all the time until he finds different combinations that he likes. So I don't think there's any reason to like think, oh, Neesmith's going to be solidified in the rotation every night. Same with Terry and O'Shea and all these guys. I think it's going to be a rotating mix of different lineups. But um, that's where I think it could be difficult for him, though, uh, is just not getting consistent run. And I think with Indiana, he's hoping probably to have an opportunity where he can get more minutes and not feel as pressure to – you know, be this guy that he hasn't been able to be uh, for the Celtics. And, you know, any, anytime you get a fresh start, I think it's, it's always good, especially if you've been struggling. We know Kendall Brown's going to hopefully thrive in the G league next year. Do you have any, any confidence <laughs> that maybe Andrew Nemhard could crack the rotation a little bit and any thoughts on Mr. Nemhard? Yeah, it's interesting. We had Nemhard on the podcast and, you know, he said that he's more than a point guard, that he can play with Halliburton, he can play with McConnell. So that's another guy you could throw in the mix there too. Like, do they yep. view him higher than Neesmith in terms of, you know, projecting long-term? I mean, obviously they give him a really nice contract, the best uh, contract that's ever been offered to a second round pick. So uh, good for him and getting that contract done. But I, I will say this, like we ask him point blank, would you be okay with playing in the G league next year to develop your game? And he said, I think it's a great opportunity for guys like myself. If I'm not getting playing time with the, with the regular rotation to go over into the G league and, and get those reps and, and, and get, you know, solidified and develop. And so he actually viewed it as a positive thing where, you know, some guys would be like, I'm not playing in the G league, you know, like it's, they're better than that. And he didn't come across mm-hmm. that way. He actually came across as very like accepting to it. So if he doesn't get a lot of time in the rotation, because, I think one thing that McConnell does great is make other players around him better. Uh, and that's where Neesmith could also really thrive is playing with a guy like McConnell, who's always got his head on a swivel, looking to find the open guy, similar to Halliburton. I know they're different players, but uh, McConnell is definitely a pass first guy. Um, but Nimhard, I, I like his game. He didn't like, he was kind of a surprise pick at 31 for me. I'm not going to lie. Wasn't really on my radar for the Pacers. And he thought he was going to get drafted a little bit earlier. And he got a promise and didn't get taken. So, um, you know, that coming to Indiana, though, he said it was a perfect fit for him. And I like his personality. I like his game. I think he's going to be good. But at the same time, I think right now the Pacers view him more as a third string point guard because last year they had a revolving door as a third string point guard. It was like Brad Wanamaker at one point. Then it was uh, Kiefer Sykes. And then Dwayne Washington played some of it. So it's just like it was just a weird uh, <laughs> weird time last year. I think like we had over 30 some players on the roster at one point uh, because of COVID and all the trades and all that. So that's where I'm at with, uh, with Nimhard, but I don't think playing behind Halliburton and McConnell is actually that bad of a, bad of a thing. He's going to learn a lot and uh, grow a lot as a player. Well, Alex, I, I said, I wasn't going to bang the drum of the usual Pacers topics, but we pretty much went through the whole roster, my friend. Yeah. So I can't thank you enough for actually coming on and, and helping me do a comprehensive dive on <laughs> the Indiana Pacers, not, not just the young guys. Are you surprised that I was able to keep up with, with all of the Pacers conversation throughout? Are you a little surprised? No, I, I think you, I think you do your homework pretty well. So I was <laughs> not uh, surprised at all, but it was definitely, you know, I didn't know how deep we were going to get into the weeds here, but it was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, it's always interesting hearing like different opinions of people that aren't actually fans of the team and kind of their perspective on things. But I think with your coverage of these young players for the last couple of years, you know, it was more, uh, 
interesting and exciting for you to talk about some of these guys you've been looking at because of covering the draft. And that's the nice thing about this Pacers team. There's so many guys that were taken within like the last four years. Um, that's like their whole core. And, and it's exciting yep. to see them grow and what their future could be because, you know, not everybody's going to hit. I know that some of these guys we have right now, they might not hit, but it's still like they're young and they're learning and you're just excited to see what they can become. So I think for you, you probably feel the same way. Like, yeah, there's a lot of good young players on this team. Don't know how they're all going to fit and how they're all going to get playing time. But, you know, uh, I'll say this. I think Terry Taylor is a very underrated player. Uh, we didn't talk about him or O'Shea too, too much, but um, had Terry on the podcast. And I, I will say this, uh, Terry Taylor, if he doesn't get a lot of playing time in the rotation, I'll be disappointed because I think that he has uh, a lot of upside to his game. Alex, it's been an incredible time having you on. Please, please tell my audience where they can find yourself on social media as well yeah. as the Set in the Pace podcast to actually listen to all of these player interviews that you've uh, alluded to. I, I love listening to interviews like that. I think you really yeah. get to learn a lot about these players as people. So please let my audience know where they can find all of that content. Yeah, everybody. I mean, we're on Twitter at setting the pace three for our podcast on Instagram at Pacers talk. So, you know, two different things there. And then on YouTube, if you just type in setting the pace, or if you go to Google and type in setting the pace, YouTube, it'll pop right up. You can watch these interviews that we've had on there. We've had former players on as well. So just, you know, really trying to dive into YouTube a little bit more than we previously had. But um, if you want to hear my thoughts on the NBA and the Pacers and just random stuff every once in a while, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Alex Golden NBA. Uh, not really super uh, present on Instagram that much, but um, I do do Thursday trivia on uh, about five questions every Thursday. So if you're interested in some trivia and not always basketball stuff, check out the IG, give me a follow and uh, play along with the Thursday trivia. Awesome. Awesome. One more thank you to Alex Gold for coming on the podcast today. And, and, and one large thank you to my audience out there, everyone who listens to the Draft Deeper podcast on a weekly basis. Thank you so much for your support. If you aren't subscribed to the podcast already, make sure you're doing so wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Make sure you're following me on Twitter at Draft Deeper. Make sure you're following the No Ceilings Collective on Twitter as well at No Ceilings NBA, as well as subscribe to the Substack, nocillingsnba.com. We are still publishing content about two to three days a week during this off-season period. I'm making a return to doing more regular written content starting next week, and we're, we're, we're not that far off from starting to talk about the 2023 NBA draft on this podcast feed. I promise just a couple more weeks, we're going to be breaking into it with my brand-new lead co-host, Maxwell Baumbach, as well as Stephen Gillespie will also be returning to the podcast feed while he's around to help us do some episodes. We're going to preview the entire 2023 draft class in different ways. We'll talk about the freshmen. We'll talk about returning players, international guys, overtime elite, G League Ignite, the whole nine yards. That content's not that far away, I promise. But until then, make sure you're subscribed and locked into the feed. And thank you again for listening to this episode of the podcast. Until we meet again, I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week.